Right, now this podcast is going to be more focused on the Western Front section of Paper 1, which will be the first 16 marks in the exam tomorrow. Um, this one's going to focus on key battles, because it must be understood the key battles when they happened, just in case you've got a provenance question uh, or a date in your provenance that you'd be able to link to. So there were four key areas. It must be understood that World War One wasn't all trenches and that some areas saw very different fighting. So the first area you've got is Epes. Now, the area surrounding Epes was the scene of major of several major battles in World War One that lasted months. Now this was due to a number of uh, reasons. Like for example, the first battle of Epes, the British were defending key areas which were fought until the trenches stretched out. Now, Epes stood on a direct route to the English Channel, so ports such as Calais and Dunkirk. If Germany got these, then they would be cut off supplies to the English army and Epes had to be defended to keep the British going. The Epes salient was also a vulnerable bulge as it could be attacked from three sides. And the Germans occupied a ridge of high ground overlooking the salient, which means they could shoot down on the British and the Allies. Higher land was also better for the Germans in terms of transport, especially in terms of their trenches as well, because the British trenches were below sea level, meaning they waterlogged easy, uh, easier and became a lot worse in terms of their condition, while the soil was also heavier in the British trenches, which meant it churned up dangerously um, during shell fire, which made it difficult for transportation of wounded soldiers. Um, the second Battle of Epes was quite important because it was the first time the Germans used chlorine gas to try and capture Epes. The casualty rate was around 60,000 soldiers, so that's why the second battle was quite important. And also, during the Second Battle of Epes, the Battle for Hill 60 occurred. That's where the Germans occupied Hill 60, a high area of land, which was a man-made hill. Um, it was 60 metres above sea level, which allowed the Germans to shoot down on the British soldiers. And what the British did, they decided to dig under the tunnel, uh, dig under the hill. Um, and on the 17th of April 1915, five mines were exploded under the Germans' position, which literally blew the top off Hill 60 allowing the British to obtain the hill four days later. Um, and also the Third Battle of Epes was an attempt to stop the Germans from breaking through French defences. The aim was to capture Passchendaele near Epes. Um, the German defence was strong. A lot of the ground turned to mud because of rain during the battle, but the Allies were successful in this, but there was 245,000 casualties. So three Battle of Epes, that's important to understand. The Somme was also a key area during the First World War. So 1916, the Battle of the Somme was one of the most well-known battles, mainly due to its deadly nature. Now, the casualty rates of this, the British expected to lose or have 10,000 casualties each day. However, on the first day, there were 60,000 casualties alone. And in the process of the Battle of the Somme, there were around 400,000 Allied casualties and 450,000 German. Now, this had a huge medical impact. So if you think about the evacuation route, the RAP, the dressing stations, the CCS, the base hospitals, they'd be a lot busier during this time period. So if you were to see a source that suggests they weren't as busy, you could question the provenance's um, usefulness in terms of its date of publication.
The third key area was the battle or the area of Arras. Um, now, the Battle of Arras was fought in 1917, but it's remem mainly remembered for what happened before. So soldiers from England and New Zealand dug a network of tunnels in the ground underneath Arras. Now, the ground in Arras was chalky, which meant that tunnelling was a lot easier. And they joined the new tunnels up with ancient tunnels and quarries, which were already under the city. This created the underground hospital, so rooms were created out of the tunnels and fitted with running water and electricity. This allowing accommodation for up to 700 soldiers, operating theatres, and the tunnels were also used as shelters against fire and to convey troops to the front in secrecy and safety. And the fourth area that's quite important for the uh, Western Front course is Cambrai. Now, the Battle of Cambrai was the first large-scale attacks by tanks. So over 450 tanks were used on the German front line in 1917. As there was no previous attacks though, the assault was a surprise, so it was supposedly a positive. The tanks were effective and the Germans lost ground on the first day. However, because the tanks didn't have men assisting them, they couldn't hold much land once they'd taken it. So the land that was taken by the tanks was eventually lost. Right now, carrying on with the concept of Paper 1 Western Front, I'm just going to quickly go through a couple of things, including the problem of transport and communication, and also some of the conditions requiring treatments. So the first thing, transport and communication was a significant problem on the Western Front for many reasons. So there was constant shelling, which left the landscape full of craters, and it destroyed many of the roads, which made it difficult to transport injured soldiers. The land was often waterlogged, as previously mentioned, because of the British trenches being below sea level. Prior to World War I also, the land was farmland. Now this caused problems in regards to infection, because there was lots of uh, fertiliser which was left in the soil. It meant that bacteria could infect the wounds and cause quite significant infection on even the smallest of cuts on a soldier. Now, because of the constant shelling also, stretcher bearers were exposed to shelling and gunfire. Being a stretcher bearer was physically demanding. There was only around 16 stretcher bearers for every 1,000 men. So that became a physically tiring operation in which stretcher bearers were important to the overall safety and well-being of seriously injured soldiers. Even more so, stretcher bearers were incredibly important at the beginning of the war. Because the military leadership of the war decided not to send any motor ambulances to the Western Front. But this was a problem because the horse-drawn wagons couldn't cope with the numbers, a number of people being injured. And also in terms of horse-drawn wagons, they became very difficult to transport. Um, but motor ambulances did develop later on. Horse-drawn wagons as well, based on the terrain, the, the holes in the ground... And the fact that the landscape was full of craters and the roads were destroyed, horse-drawn wagons were often very shaky. And the key thing if you've got a seriously injured soldier, especially in regards to broken bones or brain injuries, is to keep them still. So this often made their injuries worse, made them potentially bleed out. The lack of transport also meant that many soldiers were left to die or taken prisoner, prisoners of war. And the motor vehicles later on when they were developed found it very difficult to operate in the muddy terrain, potentially getting stuck quite regularly. Now the way in which this developed is very simple. So first of all, 
Following a public appeal in Britain made by the Times newspaper, there were 512 ambulance wagons brought within three weeks which were able to help with the number of soldiers which were being injured, especially in the first two years of the war. The first motor ambulances were sent in 1914 as a result of work by the British Red Cross. Now, these motor ambulances were driven by the British Red Cross until 1916 when their role was taken over by the FAMY. Furthermore, the stretcher bearers, uh, to overcome the physicality of the job, four men were used to stretcher bear rather than two. And adding to this, in the worst areas in which maybe the terrain was more difficult than others, six horses would be used to pull ambulance wagons rather than two to make sure that the ambulance wagon could make it through the tough terrain and the potential waterlogged, muddy nature. You also had wounded men who were transported by train or canal in the final stage of evacuation. Now this obviously helped with transport and communication because these trains and canal barges, in some cases, had operating theatres on, so soldiers could be develop, uh, could be looked after a bit better, and also have their have their lives potentially saved and put them in a stable condition before arriving at the base hospitals, who would continue the treatment. And as previously mentioned, some of the wounded that were being carried on canals bypassed the base hospitals to be transferred into ships that were taking them straight to Britain. So if their injuries were a blighty wound and it was too difficult to even or too difficult to even comprehend them being operated on, then they would be sent straight back to Britain, put on a ship and bypass the base hospitals. So the next stage that needs to be considered is the medical issues and the conditions that you could potentially face on the Western Front. Now, there are a range of different ones. Now, the first thing I'll go through is the weapons that soldiers would have to face. So one problem that faced the medical services um, that was already mentioned was the vast number of casualties. Now, this war was much longer and the armies were so much larger than in previous wars. So... It needs to be understood that the casualty rate is going to be a lot higher. In some cases, this war was 130 times bigger than wars such as the Boer War. But the medical services didn't face just simply face more casualties. They faced more serious injuries because of developments in weaponry. So you had things like rifles. Now, there weren't anything new about rifles, but they became more efficient. So they didn't need to be loaded one bullet at a time. They had automatic rapid fire. Bullets were also designed with a more pointed shape which drove them deeper into the body for a longer distance which made it more difficult and made more serious injuries especially in regards to clothing going into the wounds which would cause infections. And machine guns could fire around 500 rounds per minute and that's the equivalent of 100 rifles. Now they were a major part of trench defences and had a devastating impact against attacking forces approaching over no man's land. Um, they were mass produced so there were lots of machine guns on both sides. Shrapnel, now this was a hollow shell which was packed with steel balls or lead together with gunpowder and a timer fuse and it was designed to explode in mid-air above the enemy causing maximum casualties. It was the most effective, it caused the most injuries and it definitely was one that was difficult to prevent. And artillery. So the artillery was the, um, the cannon that grew bigger and more powerful throughout the war. So, for example, the British developed a, a howitzer, which could send 900 kilogram shells 
at a distance of over 12 miles. So this straight away, that's going to have a devastating impact on any form of illness or condition that could be caused, any wounds that could be developed because of the Western Front and because of the nature of the weapons. For example, shrapnel can cause a high number of head injuries. Um, and this and that had to develop in terms of how the soldiers were being prepared. So, for example, at the beginning of the war, they were using cloth helmets. This developed into the Brodie helmet as time went on. Now, it's suggested that around 200,000 men on the Western Front were injured by um, shells and shrapnel, which is around 58% of the wounds which were responsible um, by shrapnel. Now, other conditions I'll go through real quick is you've got trench foot. I mean, if this came up in the exam, you'd need to give specifics. So trench foot was a painful swelling of the feet caused by standing in cold mud and water for a prolonged amount of time. Um, in the second stage of trench foot, gangrene set in. Now, what gangrene means is it means where your body tissue decomposes due to a loss of blood supply. Now, the way in which to deal with trench foot was preventing it by rubbing whale oil into the feet keeping feet dry and regularly changing socks around three times a day. And then if gangrene did develop, then you may need to do things like debridement, the Carol Dakin method, which was the salt solution, or amputation to stop it spreading along the leg. Trench fever was a flu-like symptoms, uh, a condition where you've got high temperature, headache, aching muscles. It affected around half a million men on the Western Front. So it was quite a significant problem because men would be out of action for a couple of weeks. Now, the problem with trench fever is, is that it, the cause of it wasn't determined until 1918, which uh, people realised it was lice causing it. Now, this isn't surprising based on the poor conditions of the trenches. But in 1918, delousing stations were set up. And after this, there was a decline in the number of men that were experiencing this condition. Shell shock, also known as NYD. N, not yet diagnosed, nervous. Now, around 80,000 British troops experienced shell shock, but this is really difficult to tell because many men were actually accused of faking it to try and get out of the war. So symptoms include tiredness, headaches, nightmares, uncontrollable shaking and complete mental breakdown, which is hardly surprising because of the horrific nature of this war and what men would have seen Maybe their own their own friends dying because a lot of these men joined in their pals regiments. Um, so it is hardly it's hardly surprising. Now to prevent it or the solutions was quite difficult because the condition wasn't understood. Uh, so in some cases, such as Wilfred Owen, it in, included treatment back in England, and there was a hospital set up known as uh, called the Craig Lockhart Hospital in Edinburgh, which treated two thousand men for shell shock, but. As I say, really difficult to treat because many men who experienced shell shock were accused of being cowards and many were punished for this and some even shot because of this. The third type of problem that could be faced, um, a further type, sorry, is the effects of gas attacks. Now, gas attacks caused a significant level of panic and fear, um, which is shown in some very important sources. So you had the poem Dolce Est Decorum Est, which was written by Wilfred Owen in 1917. And it shows basically the fear that soldiers faced, even though gas attacks weren't a major cause of death. Around 6,000 British soldiers that died with it. 
it was the fear of it. And it caused some significant development. So by 1915, the British Army gave troops on the Western Front gas masks, which became more sophisticated over time. So the first type that we need to discuss is um, chlorine. It was used by the Germans in the Second Battle of Ypres. It led to death by suffocation, but you'd need a significant amount of chlorine gas to do that. The medical services had no experience with dealing with gas attacks, so had to experiment with treatments, and those experiments would be done in the base hospital and then sent back to the Western Front. Now, before gas masks were developed in July 1915, the British soldiers had their own way of preventing issues. So they would urinate onto a cotton pad and hold it up against their faces to stop the gas from entering their lungs. And because of the Germans using chlorine gas, the British retaliated at the Battle of Luz. However, this was an issue for the British because the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. So it actually blew back onto the British soldiers. Um, so it, it, it did all depend just the weather conditions as to how successful the gas attack was going to be. Second type is going to be phosgene. Now phosgene was the more um, more dangerous one. Um, it was, you couldn't see phosgene. Its effects were similar to chlorine, but it was faster acting. And what the soldiers would do, what the armies would do is mix phosgene and chlorine together, which means if you were exposed to phosgene gas, it could kill an exposed person within two days of inhaling it. And the third most serious type of gas was mustard. Now, mustard was first used in 1917 by the Germans. It was odourless and it worked within 12 hours, causing both internal and external blisters. And it could pass through clothing to burn the skin. Therefore, things like gas masks became ineffective. Now, what needs to be understood about mustard gas is that it lingered. It stayed around, so it could potentially get into the cracks of the trench and it wouldn't go away. It could linger for days, weeks, months. Therefore, it could get into a soldier's wound, but it could also affect them in the long run, potentially blistering, blistering their insides or their outside. Now, what needs to be understood that even though gas was a horrific weapon, in most cases, the effects of blindness, blindness uh, loss of taste, uh, smell, coughing, it disappeared after around two weeks unless you really were exposed to, say, mustard gas. Now, doctors near the front um, gave sufferers oxygen to reduce breathing problems and washed the skin throughout to remove traces of poison gas. Most of those who feared they had been blinded recovered their sight quite quickly. However, the large number of gas casualties, even if only affected temporarily, clogged up the treatment areas so meant the numbers in the dressing stations, the casualty clearing stations, went up quite significantly and made it harder for doctors to identify and treat those more in need of help. So gas attacks really could be dealt with more at the front than they needed to in the CCSs. So it caused more significant problems, it raised the number of uh, casualties and made it difficult for the RAMC and the doctors to really come to a head as to who to treat first right now this other podcast on the western front is going to talk mainly about the impact on the western front on medicine and surgery so you need to have an understanding on how medical developments occurred this is one of the biggest chunks of the course and it wouldn't and it didn't come up last year so it wouldn't surprise me if it made an appearance this year but we've got to know it all so first thing you need to understand why did the western front cause medical improvement so 
First thing, everyone in the medical services worked a lot harder and longer than in peacetime. So they definitely put more emphasis on making sure people were saved. The Western Front caused new problems which needed urgent solutions. So people worked faster. People worked together. So industry and government devoted resources to develop and improve medical and surgical equipment. There was pressure on doctors to get men fit to return back to service. So doctors shared and communicated their ideas to improve treatment as rapidly as possible. Doctors had to find solutions to the new weapons that were being developed, as previously mentioned in the other podcast. And surgeons did a lot more operations, which meant that they became more experienced and it allowed them to tackle problems and made them specialists in particular types of operations. Now, the first issue that needs to be considered is the issue of infection, one that was a significant problem on the Western Front. Now, with that, you've got three types of preventative methods. But before this, we need to understand that aseptic surgery was developed before the war, which allowed the operations to be germ free. And this was developed by uh, Lister. So if you, you do need to understand that obviously development happened before the war, but during the war, there was more development in helping infection in regards to men who developed gangrene. So the first one, the Carol Dakin method, which was a salt solution that would be put into, into the wound to be able to reduce the infection. Now, the problem with the Carol Dakin method was it only lasted for six hours. So you couldn't have a ready supply of the salt solution. Otherwise, it would go, go off. And which made it difficult because if you had a huge influx of soldiers, they may all need the Carol Dakin method to be able to help with an infection. But it did work. It was effective. It was just the whole gauging how many people you would need to use it on. Another form of preventative method for infections, or, deal, or treating it indeed, was to make sure that all the shell and bullet fragments were removed, however small they were, and debridement. So if you developed an infection, it was a case of cutting out all the dead tissue and the muscle surrounding the wound that might become infected. Now, these, this debridement wasn't sewed up straight away. They were kept open for the use of antiseptics. Um, if you immediately sewed something up, then it could trap bacteria inside. So what debridement did, it cut away the dead tissue, they left it open for a couple a couple of hours, you'd assume. They would make, make it open, they wouldn't sew it up straight away. And once it was sewed up, you know that it's had a bit of freedom. It doesn't allow the bacteria to get inside. And hopefully that's going to be the next best form of treatment so the infection doesn't spread across the entire leg or arm or part of the body that is infected. Now if the Carol Dakin method and debridement does not work then the next stage may be amputation. 240,000 men by 1918 had an amputation due to infection. Now the positive of this very simple it saved their lives. It made that meant sure that they the infection didn't spread, didn't get into their bloodstream and meant that they could continue living a normal life as much as possible. Now, the way in which this was overcome is the development of prosthetic limbs, in which around 24,000 men used after the war to try and give them a sense of normality, and because of the impact this injury would have had on their everyday lives. So, infection. If you've got a question, two features, or a useful question, you're thinking Carol Dakin method, you're thinking debridement, and you're thinking the impact 
of amputation. Another development during the war was the x-ray machines. Now before the war, x-ray machines were a problem, mainly because the tubes that they developed overheated very quickly, mainly because an, an x-ray would take about 90 minutes and that's providing that the person keeps the body parts still. Now, x-rays also gave off a harmful amount of radiation in which they would burn the skin and would also, your, your patient's hair would fall out. So development of x-rays was quite important. Now, the first thing that needs to be understood is the use of mobile x-ray machines. Now, doctors realised the potential of x-rays as soon as they were discovered. But the use of their use in the First World War demonstrated how important they could be. So casualties had been wounded by bullets, shrapnel, fragments of little objects, all which needed to be located to make surgery faster and more effective. X-rays made rapid location of these objects possible, enabling surgeons to remove them easily and completely, reducing the chance of infection. The increased use of X-rays therefore reduced the death rate for infections. Now, it needs to be understood that the length of time of x-rays would decrease significantly. It was around several minutes during the war. Um, however, the x-rays didn't really identify fragments of clothing that would go into your body if you were shot. And that fragment of clothing may have some form of fertilizer on it, which could cause an infection. Now, the development of x-rays it shows straight away because in January 1915, there were only two mobile X-ray vehicles in the British Army. So at the start, they weren't overly used. However, as the war went on, the government ordered many more X-ray machines to be manufactured. And by early 1916, most of the CCSs, as well as all the hospitals, had X-ray equipment with additional X-ray lorries attached to groups of casualty clearing stations. So X-rays developed vastly throughout the war, which meant that they could be used quickly to identify any shrapnel wounds, or bullet wounds that the soldier may have had. Now, taking it further, the Thomas splint. Well, Thomas splint basically helps fractured bones heal. It doesn't really sound like a dramatic development, but the Thomas splint saved thousands of lives. Early in the war, those who had their femur, their thigh bone, now the thigh bone is the longest and strongest bone in the body, they would have had it broken by gunfire. They died in huge numbers. Around 80% of soldiers in the first two years of the war died if they had a femur break by a bullet wound. Now, the reason for this is that doctors only had very simple splints to fix the wounded leg. It didn't stop the broken ends of the bone causing considerable blood loss, and basically many of them died before they could be treated due to loss of blood and going into shock. Not just this, but if they were being transported, they would have to be kept very still. And if they weren't kept still, which we know was very difficult to do, then the injury would get worse. Now, the solution was the Thomas splint. It was invented by Hugh Owen Thomas. Uh, the splint pulled the leg lengthways, stopping the bones grinding on each other and greatly reduced the blood loss. Now, by coincidence, Thomas' nephew, Robert Jones, became the Army's Director of Military Orthopaedics. And he made sure that the Thomas splint was used from 1916 onwards. So the nephew of the person that created this was on the Western Front telling people how it worked. All regimental medical officers were taught how to use it so that it, used, so that it was used near the front line as possible. In aid posts, dressing stations. This meant that when soldiers got to the CCSs, your base hospitals, 
they were fit enough to be operated on because they didn't lose too much blood. And the Thomas splint reduced the death rate from around 80% to 20% or lower. And far fewer amputations were needed because it could be operated on successfully. Now, we know the importance of the Thomas splint because there was a quote by um, RAMC surgeon Ambrose Lockwood who said that the Thomas splint was the most important agent of all in combating shock and saving lives and limbs. So even though the Thomas splint might seem like a small development, it saved many lives. Another medical development that needs to be considered is the development and use of blood transfusions and the storage of blood. Now, before the war, this was developed to an extent. So, for example, the finding of blood groups by Carl Landsteiner in 1901 showed that blood could be transfused safely from one person to another. But, however, there was a problem on how to store blood without it clotting. So until this problem was solved, the donor and the patient had to be directly connected to avoid clotting. The war, the war created a huge need for blood. And this made the, pro, the, the solving the problem more difficult and more urgent. The impact of high explosives, the machine gun bullets, the shrapnel bombs, made, meant that people dying and blood loss um, was constant. So this urgent need for storage of blood and blood transfusions was really important. So firstly, you had an American scientist, Richard Lewisham. He discovered that sodium citrate could be added to blood to prevent it clotting. This meant that blood could be stored and so the donor did not have to be present when a transfusion was carried out. This increased the number of transfusions. So basically that was really important so that the soldier didn't need to be in the same room as the person giving the blood. It saved many lives, however, this um, the blood that was stored deteriorated quickly. So, in Lewisham's discovery, the blood had to be used quite quickly. Later on, you had uh, scientists found that blood could be stored in refrigerated conditions and that by adding a citrate glucose solution to the blood allowed it to be stored for several days after it had been collected. This led to the first blood banks being created ahead of a major attack. So blood would be available for the wounded because it's been stored due to this citrate glucose solution. And then a third development was Jeffrey Keynes, who created a portable machine for storing blood, which uh, by using like sawdust and ice. And it could be used to take blood closer to the front line. It meant that soldiers could receive blood sooner, stopping their bodies going into shock and saving more lives. Now, one of the key developments for storage was the blood bank at Cumbrai. So the, identifi the identification of blood groups and the use of the blood type O as a universal blood type meant that risk of being transfused with the wrong blood group was reduced. Now, as previously mentioned, so we talked about Lewisham discovering that sodium citrate, which means that people could be in the same room. You also had Richard Vile, and he discovered that blood with sodium citrate could be refrigerated, as mentioned, stored for uh, several days. And then in 16, Ruiz and Turner found that adding citrate glucose could store it for a much longer period, all things that were previously mentioned. Now, the use of stored blood, a key turning point, was demonstrated in 1917 at the Battle of Cumbrai. Now, before the battle, Oswald Hope Robertson, who was a British-born American doctor, stored 22 units of universal uh, donor blood in glass bottles. He built a carrying case for this, 
which he packed ice and sawdust and called it a blood depot. During the battle, he treated 20 severely wounded soldiers with 22 units of blood, which was around 26 days old. They were so badly affected by shock that none of them were expected to survive. But out of the 20 men that were treated, 11 did, which was a huge turning point because these men had lost so much blood and went into shock. But they were majority, well, just over majority, were saved. And this work at Cumbrai was the first time that stored blood was used to treat soldiers soldiers in shock and although it was only on a small scale it showed the potential of saving lives it was important because during times of heavy fighting only the most severe wound, severely wounded were taken to ccs's and the less severely wounded who were normally the men who gave blood would not be taken there therefore the blood depots made a huge difference to the survival rates of men on the western front now the last aspect we need to look at is plastic surgery and brain surgery plastic surgery straight away was carried out way before this war right? but it has always been limited because of the dangers of infection and also the absence of effective anesthetics but these problems were dealt with in the 19th century which meant that surgeons could make considerable progress in plastic surgery to solve the problems created by many wounds so bullet wounds, shell damage, especially to the face. Now, one major improvement in terms of plastic surgery was the use of skin grafts, taking skin from another part of the body and grafting it onto the area of the wound. There were around 11,000 plastic surgery operations in this, in this period, increasing the experience of the surgeons and learning from each other. So by November 1915, there were seven hospitals in France that had specialist areas of dealing with wounds that needed plastic surgery, particularly to the head. Surgeons developed new techniques using jaw splints and wiring and metal plates as replacement cheeks. One of the key men is Harold Gillies. He was a surgeon who served with the RAMC through the war and he was known as the father of plastic surgery. He worked with French surgeons learning from their techniques and then persuaded the army chief surgeon that a special facial reconstruction care was needed in England and this led to the Queen's Hospital being opened in Kent which specialised in repairing facial injuries. The last development is brain surgery. Now brain and head injuries were one of the most difficult to deal with because firstly you didn't know the severity when it happened and you had to keep a man really still because he'd be he'd show signs of confusion and it could make it worse if he was moved too quickly. Now, the number of serious head injuries was another difficult feature of the early part of the war. Now, the soldiers that were standing in the trenches, their heads were the most vulnerable part of their bodies. However, there'd been little surgery carried out on the brain before 1914, so this was relatively unknown. People did not know how to do brain surgery. Um, it was risky. And also, the time in which it was needed to tackle a head wound meant that men were off the front line for a significant amount of time. So they'd have to rest for up to a month to be able to deal with a brain injury. But because of the number of people that got brain injuries and head injuries, the surgeons really pushed to try new ideas, even if some of them were really simple. So, for example, putting rubber bands around the head to put pressure on the wound and reduce bleeding. There were two developments that had changed the approach to head wounds. So... Blood transfusions were obviously given 
to reduce shock. You also had the use of magnets. Now, this was used by a man called Harvey Cushing. The use of magnets to remove fragmentation uh, of little bits of shell that may have been in the brain. Also the use of local anaesthetic, because the use of general anaesthetic swelled the brain. So by keeping it local, it meant that the patient, even though was still awake, would still have some form of um, potential to survive because their brain wasn't swelling as much. Now, x-rays obviously helped this because they were able to locate, identify and remove fragments. And as I mentioned, Harvey Cushing used uh, magnets to be able to develop this. So brain surgery became more popular because people experimented with it and became more successful. So Harvey Cushing's um, success rate usually would be around 50% with your normal surgeon. Harvey Cushing's techniques meant that his survival rate was 71%, therefore having a significant impact on the development of brain injuries on the Western Front. 